I apologize, my voice is a little rough this morning, but um, we'll get through this together. <laughs> um, and so, uh, looking forward to today. I want to ask you just to imagine with me uh, today um, something, a scene. Imagine with me two, um, there's two elementary school boys that are standing outside of my home, out there on the front sidewalk, just staring up at my, my house. Um, if we were to take a closer look at the scene, we could see that these two elementary school boys have um, a couple of boxes with them, and we recognize them. <laughs> Those are a couple of boxes of, of candy. Um, we recognize that they're probably for a club or for a team or for a school that they are out fundraising for and um, you know, going door to door trying to sell these candy bars that are in those, those boxes. Maybe you have been there. Evidently, these two boys, as they are standing out there looking up at my home, they are um, uh, debating what they should do, what their next move should be. Uh, wondering how they should approach my front door and knock on that front door, ring the doorbell, and see if they can sell me any of their candy bars. You can imagine the discussion that's taking place between these two young guys. The first boy says, so what do you think? What, what do you think? Do you, do you think he has enough money to buy a, one of these candy bars? The second boy goes, are you crazy? Come on. I mean, just look at this house. I mean, just look at this neighborhood. I mean, this guy has probably enough money to buy a whole box of candy bars, let alone just one. So they quickly determine that the question is not whether or not I can afford it. It's or whether or not I actually want to buy one. You see, it's not whether or not I can do it. It's, it's rather whether or not I will do it. That's the real question. So the verse boy says, you know what? You know what I think? I think that um, we just need to think positively, you know? Uh, we just need to think enough happy thoughts. Um, if we're convinced that he will buy a candy bar, um, you know, if, 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 I think he'll do it. If we just have enough faith, if we just believe hard enough, I think he'll buy a candy bar from us. Second boy, not really listening to the first boy, responds, you know what, I bet, I bet he's inside right now, just looking out the window at us as we're talking here. Um, I bet you he knows what we're going to do. And, and you know what, I bet you he's even decided whether or not he is going to buy one of our candy bars. So it doesn't really matter what we say. We just need to walk up to the door, ring the doorbell, and ask I mean, it really doesn't matter what we say. Now, as we are listening into the conversation of these two imaginary elementary schoolboys, do you hear in the echoes of that conversation the whole struggle that you and I have oftentimes with prayer? <laughs> you see, I think many times we approach God in prayer the much the same way that these two boys thought about going up and knocking on my front door. If God doesn't answer my prayers, that means, well, it just means that we haven't had enough faith, you know, 
that we haven't believed hard enough. That's what we think. Or maybe we fall prey to the thinking that it, it really doesn't matter uh, what I pray. In fact, it really doesn't matter even if I pray because God already has determined what he is going to do uh, regardless of whether I pray or, or not. <laughs> but then, <clears throat> struggle is we, we run into verses like this from Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, Jesus' words. Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Uh, what do you do with those kind of, uh, of verses? Um, and what does Jesus mean here when he says, Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll, you'll find. Knock, and, and a door will be open. I mean, what is Jesus talking about? What is he promising us? In order to understand what Jesus is promising us, I think, first of all, we need to understand the parable that immediately precedes those two verses. It's a parable that oftentimes is called a friend at midnight. Now, look with me. Starting up in, excuse me, up in verse 5. Here's the parable. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer um, from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up. And give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So we have to ask, what is this parable, this story that Jesus tells? What is it all about? How does he relate that parable to the instructions that he gives later in verses 9 and 10? To seek, to knock, um, to ask. Well, first of all, I think we need to see this in its context, right? We need to see that in this context, what Jesus is doing, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. In fact, look with me in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Um, the disciples, having watched Jesus um, pray, I mean, not just once, not just twice, but Time after time after time again, he, they watch their master pray and they discover that Jesus knows something about prayer that, that they don't. That something about Jesus' prayer life that is different than, than their prayer life. And so they ask him to teach them to pray. And so Jesus gives them a model prayer, what we call, right, the Lord's Prayer. Then after he gives them this model prayer, Jesus wants to motivate them to pray. He wants to encourage them in their prayer life. He, he, he wants them to uh, uh, be challenged, to, to move ahead, to, to pray. 
And so he tells them this parable. So what is it in that story that we just read that will motivate those disciples and you and I to pray? What in this parable gives us a thirst, a desire for prayer? What is this parable teaching us? Now, if you're familiar with this parable, traditionally, this parable has been understood to be about the one who is asking, right? Uh, the friend who comes at, at midnight. Um, it's traditionally not a, about the one being asked, the one inside the home. Also, typically, uh, traditionally, this <clears throat> parable has been understood to be about being persistent in prayer. To constantly, to keep going and keep going and, and keep knocking and be persistent in our, our prayer. The need for us is to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. But I want to suggest something different this morning. I want to suggest that that's not the central point of this parable. Rather than being about the one who is asking, this parable is about, the, about God, the one who is being asked. And because of who God is and, and the confidence we can have in him and his character, we, sh we should be encouraged to pray. That's what I want to um, uh, suggest that that's what this parable is all about. So here's what I want to do. In order to help us see that, I want to make five observations uh, this morning about this parable. Now, these observations have come from a book by Kenneth Bailey and a sermon by Daryl Johnson. And I'm indebted to them. They both have suggested that when we look at this parable, what we need to do is we, we, we need to change the lens, the, the perspective that we're looking at this parable. We need to read it from a Middle Eastern um, mindset, with a Middle Eastern um, lens. I mean, after all, that was the worldview that Jesus um, was telling this story in, right? It's similar in a, in a lot of ways to the worldviews of those out of the Asian culture um, and many of those that are in African nations. Bailey and Johnson argue that to really understand what Jesus is trying to say in this parable, we need to take off our Western lens and put on a Middle Eastern lens, okay? So I'm going to encourage you to do that this morning, okay? Take off that Western, you know, cap, and put on a Middle Eastern cap if, that, if you use that imagery. So here, let me give you five observations. First observation is this, that verses 5 through 7 is a question. The ESV, if you have the ESV version, the ESV has, in fact, at the end of verse 7, put a question mark. Um, but a lot of other versions, you don't see that question mark. Um, a lot of other translations. So what Jesus is doing is he's really asking um, can you imagine this happening? Which of you at midnight receives a guest, needs some food for that guest, so you go to a friend in the neighborhood and you ask for three loaves of bread and is told to go away? Which of you? Or you might say it this way, that Jesus is saying, hey, can you imagine, I mean, can, can you just imagine Mr. A receiving a guest, so he goes to Mr. B, his friend, asking for three loaves of bread, and Mr. B says, go away. 
My kids are asleep. My door is locked. I can't help you. I mean, can you imagine such a thing happening? (laughs) So that's what Jesus is asking in this parable. Second observation. Culturally, the expected answer to that question is no. I can't imagine that type of thing happening. It's impossible. Now, I know in our Western mindset, especially these days, we can imagine such a thing taking place, right? I mean, someone knocks on your door at midnight or 2 o'clock in the morning, you say, I'm not going to answer that. Crazy. I mean, it's late at night. Go away. (laughs) But from the Middle Eastern perspective, that type of thing happening, saying go away, that that would be impossible. Um, Years ago, after I had read um, Johnson's sermon, I asked one of our Chinese scholars who attended First Free, Sam Song at that time. I asked Sam, I said, um, uh, I asked him about this story. Uh, could he ever see this kind of story happening in, in China? Um, in our discussion, he told me about how we, when he was growing up, and they were growing up in the countryside there in China, his family, um, you know, he lived out in the country, and, and someone knocked at their door late at night, and his father, without even hesitating, um, went to that door and, and helped that person with whatever that person needed. And, and uh, Sam told me that it was, it, was, it was just the expected thing to be done. It was an honor to help this friend who was in need. See, when Jesus was asking this question, um, it was impossible for those disciples to imagine this type of thing ever happening. Third observation. Culturally, one of the great values at work here is the, in this parable is the value of hospitality. You see this value of hospitality, in fact, in that this guest um, who comes to Mr. A becomes not only Mr. A's guest, but in reality, if you understand this, this, this value, becomes the guest of the whole village. Okay? My brother and his family... Um, Years ago, um, went to uh, Papua New Guinea as missionaries. Uh, they were working there with a new tribe's mission. Um, once in a while, they lived on the, the, the missionary compound, and once in a while, they would be invited to go up into the woods, into the jungle, um, to visit one of the missionaries and, and, and see their work. Um, when they would arrive in that village after traveling and, and, and going across rivers and different things, they would arrive, they, they would become not only the honored guest of the missionary that they went to visit, but they would become the honored guest of the whole village. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the hospitality value that they're talking about here. Both Mr. A and Mr. B and the whole village knew that reality, that that was the expected reality. Everyone in the village was obligated to help Mr. A take care of his guests that arrived late at night, okay? Fourth observation. There's a unique word that is translated here in the, in, uh, the ESV as impudence um, in verse 8. Do you see that? Because of his impudence, he says. Um, in other versions, it is translated persistence or, 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 or boldness. Um, but in the Greek, the word originally is aniodon. Okay? And originally, that word had the meaning of shamelessness. 
as in trying to avoid shame. Um, avoidance of shame is another important Middle Eastern um, value. European cultures, you know, <clears throat> our culture is based, uh, you know, has a, a, a guilt-based culture. While Middle Eastern, Asian, you know, um, Hispanic cultures are shame-based cultures. See, in the Middle Eastern culture, shame is a negative quality. But avoidance of shame, that is shamelessness, that's a positive quality. It's someone not wanting, you know, to, to lose face, um, not wanting to damage one's reputation, uh, and, and it, it's a central cultural value, Middle Eastern value. You do all you can to avoid bringing shame to yourself, to bringing shame to your, to your family or, or to your village. Daryl Johnson tells about when he lived in, in the Philippines. And he learned that in the Philippines, you evidently, you don't open your gifts at your birthday party. Now, here in the United States, you have a birthday party. You have, oh, let's open the gifts. Come on, let's open gifts. But in the Philippines, you don't open gifts at your birthday party. The reason why is that if I give you a gift and you don't like it, I will see on your face that's not pleasing to you. You will be shamed and I will be shamed. <laughs> um, so what you do is you thank them for the gift and you take them home and then you unwrap the gifts where you don't have to worry about shaming yourself or anyone else. So this word, verse 8, this word, aniadon, means to avoid shame at all costs. So now here's the fifth observation. This word in verse 8 applies not to Mr. A, catch this, the man outside asking, but rather it applies to Mr. B, the man inside the house, who's being asked for the bread. If you notice, there are six clauses in verse 8. Okay, follow with me on this. It says, though he will not get up, clause number one, clause number two, and give him anything, um, clause number three, because he is his friend, clause number four, because of his shamelessness, Clause number five, he will rise. Clause number six, and give him whatever he needs. Now listen, if you take all six of those clauses, the subject of each of them is the man inside the house, Mr. B. Mr. B will not get up and give him bread because this guy, um, Mr. A, is uh, Mr. B's friend, but, but... Because of Mr. B's desire to avoid shame, Mr. B will get up and Mr. B will give him his bread. So Mr. B, <laughs> catch this, Mr. B, although he might not want to, is going to get up in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to do anything that would damage his reputation. So this quality of shamelessness is being applied to the man inside Mr. B. And even if he hates the man on the outside who's knocking at his door, um, Mr. B will get up and he will um, give him as much as he needs. Because the last thing he wants is for the word to go out in that village that he was not hospitable. 
Mr. B is saying, listen, I'm not going to do anything to damage my reputation. I'm not going to lose face and have everyone asking you, why did you fail to help Mr. A? Shame on you. <laughs> so Mr. B is trying to save his reputation. He doesn't want anything to do with dishonoring his name. So you say, well, very interesting, but what's that all mean? <laughs> I mean, how does that apply to prayer? How does that apply to all of what's going on? Well, let's try putting it all together. What Jesus is teaching his disciples and us about prayer in this parable um, is that he's teaching us about the character of God. Teaching us about the character of God. He's teaching us about the man inside the house. Just as a man inside will do nothing to shame his name, so it is with God. And second, Jesus is reminding us that the Father will always honor his name. Now, you say, well, okay, but where else do you see that in Scripture? Well, think about it, right? Think about what happened in Exodus chapter 32. Moses, remember that? Um, Moses knew this truth about God's character. Exodus chapter 32, after the Israelites had, had created, had, had made that golden calf and had worshipped at it, remember what happened? How disgusted God got at them? And so God says, I've had it with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. And after that, what did Moses do? Moses goes boldly before God with a sense of confidence, and he prays, but God, what are the Egyptians going to think about this? I mean, what's going to happen to your reputation? Listen, if you wipe us all out, you'll have gone against your name. And what's God do? God relents, doesn't he? Changes his mind. David also knew this about God's character. I mean, Psalm 25, verse 11, he writes, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it's great. For your name's sake. In that well-known psalm, right? Psalm 32, the one we all know. Remember that line says, He guides me in paths of righteousness for what? His name's sake, right? For his name's sake. David knew that God will always honor his name. In Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel talks about Israel being brought back from, from captivity, the Lord says, I will restore you, I will cleanse you, I will free you. Why? For my name's sake. <laughs> Friends, I gotta tell you, it's great news. God's name is at stake in your destiny as his children. Yes, the Father loves us, but listen, even if he didn't, there's something deeper going on and it's the fact that he loves his name. He has an avoidance of shame. And Jesus is saying, you can count on that. The Father always hallows his name. God's commitment to his name translates and this is wonderful truth, translates to his commitment to his people. 1 Samuel 12, says, for the sake of his great name, Yahweh will not reject you. So what is it then that should motivate us to pray? It's the character of God. 
It's who God is. It's the fact that we can have confidence that God will answer our prayers for his name's sake. And that helps us understand the rest of these verses here in in Luke 11, doesn't it? I mean, look again with me at verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Why? Because we have to wear God down? Until he, he, he gives up and gives in? No. Jesus is telling us to keep asking and keep seeking and, and keep knocking because you know that God will respond for his name's sake. Verse 10 says, everyone who asks, right? Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because those who keep on asking keep on receiving, and those who keep on seeking, they they keep on finding, and those who keep on knocking keep on finding the door open. (laughs) That's great news. Something always happens, friends, when you pray. Why should I pray? Because you will receive. You can be confident in that fact. What will you receive? (laughs) I mean, will it be that dream trip to Disney World? What will you receive? Will it be um, a promise of uh, always perfect health? What will you receive? Will it be a new Lexus? No. No, look what he says that we can count on receiving. Verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Those who ask receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't say only those who ask for the Holy Spirit will receive the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus says, when you ask um, for anything, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the one that the Father has promised. You will receive more of God himself. Can I ask you something? (laughs) Who here does not need more of God this next year? Who here does not need more of God this next week? Man, I certainly do. First to raise my hand. (laughs) Listen, we can pray with confidence that God will answer our prayers because his reputation is at stake, friends. His reputation's at stake. In your bulletins, your bulletins, there's this card. I'm going to invite you to take that card out. It says, take the next step prayer. Um, This week, before Welcome Home Sunday, we have designated this week a week of prayer. Pastor Jason preached on uh, prayer last week, and he challenged us to take time to find those times, those moments where you just feel the spirit moving and you pray. You pray with one another. We're going to build off that. This next week is a, is a, is a week of prayer. And so I'd, I'd like to invite you to take this card out, take the pin out of uh, 
the pew rack in front of you or take one out of your purse or, or whatever you have, a pocket. And I'd like you to write down some specific things. This is not something to do at home. I want you to do it here. This is an assignment I want to give everyone right here, right now. And that is, I'd like to, you to commit this week to pray each day. Right at the very beginning, it says, I commit to pray each day at, at home. If you're watching online, I invite you to take out a piece of paper and just answer that. I will commit to pray each day at and put the time down. Now, I'm not saying you have to pray an hour long. I'm not asking. Make it whatever you can reasonably do, but specific time of the day, each day this week, I'm going to commit to pray at 1 o'clock. I ain't commit to pray at 11 o'clock in the morning. For five minutes each day, I'm going to commit to pray. It's a week of prayer for us, body. What are you going to do? And then I want you to say, well, you say, well, what do I, what do I pray for? Well, we have uh, some options there. Maybe write down names of, uh, of friends of you, yours that do not know Christ. You want to pray for them. Maybe you want to write down, I commit to praying for the following ministries of our church. We have a whole list of ministries that are getting ready to launch as we move into the fall. I mean, we have Creekside Friends. We have Velocity Student Ministry. We have our Adult Smile small groups. We have our Wednesday morning neighborhood Bible study. We have MOPs. Oh, just a lot of different ministries. Pick one out. Say, I'm going to pray for that ministry. Last one is, I commit to pray for the following issues in my neighborhood, city, in my workplace. Pray for those issues. Maybe you list one of the two of those. You say, I'm going to commit to pray for that. In my prayer each day, I'm going to commit to pray for those things. And this is just getting you started. Doesn't have to end here. Where do you need more prayer this next week? Where do you need more of God this next week? Where do you need more of God this next year? Can you imagine Mr. A going to Mr. B and asking for three loaves of bread and being told to go away? No, I can't. It's impossible. Can you imagine going to God the Father in the name of God the Son and asking for more of the power or cleansing or joy of the Holy Spirit and being told to go away? No, it's impossible. The Father will get up and he'll give you as much of himself as you need. Take some time. Fill out the card. What are you going to be praying for this next week? I'm going to give you some time.
I'm not in any hurry. I want you to really fill out the cards. I want you to really identify when you're going to pray this week and what you'll be praying for. So take some time. Father God, thank you for the privilege of calling you Father. Hallowed be thy name. God, might we come to you with confidence, with a sense of confidence because we know that not only will you hear us, but you will respond. You'll give us more of yourself. Give us more of your spirit to change us, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. Teach us to pray. Your son's precious name, amen.